Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today, we talk to economist, business owner, and United States congressional candidate, Tim Reichert, about effective philanthropy and the erosion of the American middle class. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We are recording on May 18th, 2022 in dry as dust, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, where we can't wait for the summer rains to arrive, if they arrive. God help us, they will arrive this year. Uh, And I am happy to have as our guest today another Westerner, Tim Reichert, founder and CEO of Economics Partners and candidate for Congress in the 7th District of Colorado. Tim Reichert lives in Golden, Colorado, with his wife, Martha. He was formerly a partner at both Ernst & Young and Duff and & Phelps. I'll let him tell a little more of his life story here in a little bit. But I will note that he has a doctorate in economics from George Mason University. And I suspect that much of our conversation today will revolve around that discipline because uh, Tim has a very interesting uh, take on uh, some very significant economics data for the last 100 years or so especially in the last 50 years. Uh, Tim and his wife, Martha, work with the homeless through their support and participation in the mission of Christ in the city and missionaries of charity. They have both served on the board of Endow, and Martha served as president of that Catholic women's organization. Tim currently serves on the board of St. John Vianney Seminary, and Martha serves on the board of Thomas Aquinas College, the Augustine Institute, Endow, and Creatio. I think I'm saying that correctly. Uh, Tim Reichert, welcome. Well, thanks. To, <laughs> thanks for having me, Jeremy. Great to be here. And did I say it correctly? You did. You nailed it. Yes. Creatio. All right. Well, I didn't have any Latin in school as a, as a public school Protestant kid from <laughs> Indiana. A few of the propers and, saw, and you know hymns and Latin in, in church have fixed me up a little bit. Good for um, you. Well, it's great to have Great to have you on, Tim. You, you fit all three of the categories that we talk about on this uh, podcast. You're, you're a giver, you're definitely a doer, and you're definitely a thinker. Um, so Thank we're, we're going to hit on all those things. So we're going to start on the, I think I want to start on the giving side because it's one of the harder things for us to do on this podcast is to have people on who are, lots of people are very generous with their giving and are great hearts and, uh, uh, you know, but sort of a virtuous generosity about them, but not many are very articulate about their giving or, necessarily are very self-reflective about it. I'm going to ask you to talk to us a little bit about that, but first, just a little bit more about you. Where did you, where did you grow up? I know you're not from Colorado originally, and how did you get interested in economics? Oh, let's see. So I grew up in uh, the Midwest. I grew up south of a town called Sandusky, Ohio, a little town called Norwalk. And it's kind of on the edge of the, of the Midwestern Rust Belt. And I grew up in the 70s. So, you know, kind of a time of stagflation and and I tell the story of kind of how I got introduced to economics. Uh, I'll never forget it. It happened at the grocery store. My dad took me down the canned goods aisle and he, he had me, my dad was a great teacher. He had me reach to the back of the shelf to get a can of beans. <clears throat> and um, he said, so what's the sticker price on there? And it was like 39 cents. And uh, I said, so what's the price on these beans at the front of the shelf? Those days pushed the older inventory to the back of the shelf and just put the new inventory at the front. It was like 42 cents or something like that. He said, so this is, this is inflation. Uh, he said, because of some things that the government uh, is doing, prices are rising and uh, they're rising faster than uh, people's wages. And uh, that had a profound effect on me. I, I, I spent time, about the same time in my life, working in fields with migrant workers in the summers to earn a little bit of extra money. My brother Greg and I uh, worked at a place called Boos's Farm Market. And we'd get there at like 6.30 in the morning and uh, we'd work until noon or 1, maybe 1.30, depending upon uh, what we were picking that day. And I, we were getting like 25 cents a quart to pick strawberries. And that was constant the whole time. Didn't change. Uh, and again, this is the stagflationary 70s. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, meanwhile, the prices of, of uh, foodstuffs were, were rising. And I, I remember what it was like to see guys and, and men and women who... 
um, they didn't own anything. They had no assets, right? All they had to right. sell was their labor. And what a profound effect it had on me to see, you know, these folks who, um, I, I remember it distinctly toward the end of that period, were increasingly having to eat in the fields because, you know, they were eating part of what they were picking in order to sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that those things really had a profound effect on me. That they, they're, they're a big part of the reason I became an economist and a uh, big part of the reason why I I have a heart for the middle class because that's where it came from. So you went to George Mason. We went to Steubenville, Franciscan University, I think, for your undergrad and yep. George Mason University for your PhD. Uh, from there, you went on to work. To maybe talk a little bit about your career um, and, and what you did. I, I know you've talked about and something else that I've either talked to you about or read. I can't remember now that part of what you did that you sort of regret now is helping. Um, what's it called? Value uh, supply uh, basically outsourcing jobs to China. <laughs> I forget what the euphemism was. Yeah, value value chain analysis. So I, I remember. So I was a partner at Ernst and Young for a time. I led their economics practice for a chunk. West, and uh, this was early in my career. I, I was in my late twenties and early thirties, and and you know I I was sort of a, a freshly minted PhD, kind of bought into. Uh, trade theory, the so-called Heckscher-Oline model, which was sort of the standard trade model, the neoclassical trade model, which says that uh, countries specialize in producing the thing uh, for which they have a comparative advantage. And you're going to displace some mm-hmm. labor and some capital when you do that, but they're going to get reallocated into sectors where they've got a higher and better use. And so I, I would participate in these projects that that uh, were called value chain analyses, and and you know the the you'd see on the the, the spreadsheets and the models of how this was going to look, you'd see things like you know FTE equivalents that uh, could, be, right. could be cut here in the U.S. And um, you know I, I, as I as I've said, I, I'm embarrassed today to say that I, I participated in that at the time. My thinking as a as I said, freshly minted economist was that, well, you know, this is how economic growth happens. And now I, I, I realize, and in part because of the research that guys like David O'Tor at MIT have done, that so many of those people who lost their jobs because we shipped our manufacturing base to China never got back on the economic ladder. It is a, it is a, a tragedy of gigantic proportions. Um, some of the work that O'Tour and others have done shows a, 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 a direct causal relationship between mm-hmm. exposure to China and the opioid crisis, for example. I mean, what what are we doing here, right? I mean, we, we shipped all these jobs to China uh, for, you know, cheaper stuff for so-called efficiency. But as I as I say now, you know, we have to remember efficiency is not God. There's a debt of loyalty that we owe to our, our fellow citizens and to the American work. We'll come back to more of this on the economics questions. I have a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about. I know that's sort of the center of your platform for Congress yeah. is, um, I think you yeah. call it your middle class restoration act, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yep. Middle class restoration plan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, plan. I'm sorry. Yeah. And anybody who's interested can go to Reichert, uh, for Congress.com. Com, I think R E I C H E R T for Congress.com and, and read it. It's all right there. It's very, it's very different than what you might typically read. I'll say that right now from a platform of anybody running for a major political party in the United States, much more detailed and thoughtful and clear uh, and less, um, yeah, less BSE. I'll say that. Uh, uh, you may pay a price for that at the polls. I hope not. I hope that it redounds to your benefit. Yeah, I think it. I think it will. And thank you for your kind remarks. <clears throat> I think that uh, I think it will redound to my benefit. Uh, it, voters here in Colorado, I think, is thrilled to the idea that we've got a Republican who's not just saying he's for the middle class, but has sort of spent the kind of time that I did developing a plan to restore it. So it's working working pretty yeah, well so far. Good, good, and I will. I'll talk to you more about that too. But before you became a candidate for Congress, which is just obviously you're in your first go right now, uh, um, you're we're still in the primary season as we're recording here, um, and you have obviously uh, competitors for the for in that primary. Uh, but what before you did that, um, and before you came up with this middle class restoration plan, um, you were you know you've been a giver, you've been active on on boards uh, and as a donor to a number of, of organizations, and so I thought I'd ask you a little bit about that. Um, what first of all, what led you to kind of have that kind of commitment to your giving, where you don't just give, you serve on a number of organizations, boards, and maybe you can talk about a little bit what you've learned from your experience on those boards about um, um, 
oh gosh, how how good boards work and how bad boards work, how good nonprofits work, how bad nonprofits work. If you, if you kind of you kind of you're a guy who tends to list things. You have come up with a list of things you've learned <laughs> in that experience as a board member. I'd be happy to, sure. So, uh, you know, I think a lot about this distinction that um, Mother Teresa makes between Christian charity and social. She she would say all the time, I'm not a social worker. And that's a really important point, right? I mean, her her point was, look, uh, there's a big difference between um, the allocation of dollars, right? The allocation of capital and changing the human heart. and uh, there's one way to change the human heart, and 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 that is through grace, right? And so she was she was very clear that she and and her her nuns, her order, uh, were not social workers. They were there to be Jesus Christ to uh, those that they encountered. And think about how efficient <laughs> to to, to right. speak as an economist. Think about how efficient. Her, uh, her order, the Missionaries of Charity, uh, has been. It's unbelievable how much they have done with so little. It's, it's truly a miracle. And, um, and so, I, you know, that has always been an inspiration to me. You know, Martha and I have spent a lot of time, uh, as we say, on boards and uh, doing um, our, our philanthropic efforts or exerting our philanthropic efforts. Um, but primarily in the in the Catholic space because we're Catholic, right. and uh, Mother Teresa has been our, our our inspiration. We really believe that uh, that charity is in fact very different from social work because of the connection to grace. You you you, you putting putting those two things together is like pouring gasoline on fire, right? You can you can have a fire and maybe it's going. You know, maybe it's like about to blow out or about to snuff out. Um, but with the with the addition of grace, um, it, it's like putting gas on that fire. And, and what do I mean by that? I mean that you see the transformation of people's lives in a way that you don't through just straight social work. I mean, we've been allocating trillions, in fact, of dollars as a country over decades to all kinds of social efforts. But where you see it pay off is is uh, is in context where you can actually change the human heart, and that that happens as a result of grace. Uh, so that's how we kind of got in, and and it also it, yeah. Go ahead, you were going to ask a question, Jeremy. Well, I wanted before you go on because I asked you a lot of things, but I want to just stop on that for a second. So, how, as a board member who thinks these things, who believes the things that you just talked about, how do you try to um, arrest any slide towards social work? Kind of thinking, for lack of a better term, yeah. um, on the nonprofits you've sat in, or how do you how do you continue to sort of assess effectiveness, the sorts of things that board members are traditionally supposed to do, um, without sliding into that sort of social work, you know, mentality that doesn't take grace into account. Yeah, yeah. Well, your question is exactly where I was going to go. Um, so there That's have been great. boards. Yeah. We're thinking alike. <clears throat> so there have been boards that that uh, I've said no to, and um, you know I'm not going to name them, but some of them are very large um, and uh, and very Catholic, and and you know I've had conversations with the folks uh, at at the heads of those organizations, and one of the things I've said is, look, I I feel like you're selling your charity cheap. I I, I feel like all through history. Uh, Christian churches have connected charity and evangelization. And I think increasingly Christian churches have divorced those two things. And it's made both worse. And by both, I mean both the charity and the evangelization, right? So, so that's a huge part of it is, is, you know, what, what, what are the boards you select? And I think a tilt toward um, evangelization and, and a tilt toward, um, Charity in that context is is number one, and then how do you how do you sort of prevent the slide toward a a sort of bureaucratic social work mentality? You know, I, I don't know that there's there's a kind of secret sauce there other than you know being watchful. You know, um, uh, the, the 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 motto or the the phrase I have used, which I just used a moment ago, 
let's not sell our charity for cheap. And, and, um, you know, right. look, I think here we can, we can even take, uh, take a cue from, you know, folks on the, on the progressive left, right? I mean, these are folks with, mm-hmm. uh, whether they know it or not, kind of a Marxian bent. Uh, and I think they do a very good job of coupling a kind of ideological evangelization with their charitable efforts. And yet, you know, right. we, we on the, let's say Catholic side where I, I come from, uh, you know, we, 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 Christianity generally built Western civilization and, and here we are all too often, uh, divorcing, uh, the, the, the soul and the development of virtue from, uh, Christian, from charity, from what used to be Christian. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's an interesting, uh, contrast you just draw there. I have met a number of Catholic leaders who are really um, not nonprofit leaders who are really good people who are um, seem to understand their faith as simply supposed to be motivate them as a motivating factor in what they do, but it's not as a penetrating or permeating factor in the fear of, you know, um, the fear seems to be that they would be, you know, won't be inclusive enough, that, that they'd be dealt up, that they won't, they won't serve everybody. Like, which we see is obviously not the case with someone like Mother Teresa, or that they um, they don't want to proselytize and turn people away or turn people off. Um, but as you point out, I think it's very smart. It's like, well, actually, um, the more your faith sort of permeates everything you do, uh, the more effective you'll actually be in the social work sort of dimension of what you do, not just in the faith dimension. Yeah. And, and not just you as a social worker slash evangelist, but also the folks that you're, you're trying to help, right? Um, there's a close, close connection, I would argue causal, uh, between the development of human virtues uh, and, and the action of grace, right? I mean, how could there not be? Right. Right? If, if anything that, that we believe is true, um, that, that must be true. Yeah. How does your... Um, how do you select then the sort of, as a giver, thinking of the, that hat on now, the organizations um, uh, you support versus the ones you, just, you decline to support? Is it is it that Mother Teresa-like understanding of what they're doing that's most important to you? Or are you looking for groups that are, um, do you try to quantify their effectiveness as a giver or have some sort of metric that you look at as a leadership? What What are you looking at when you're um, or is it just gut feel like you're just going where your heart leads you? No. Uh, so it's a, it's a few things. <clears throat> Number one, um, you know, where, where can, where can I actually help? Right. There are some boards that are just loaded with extremely talented individuals and, you know, the incremental value of my time or, or my wife's time is, is, uh, is small. Right. So, mm-hmm. so that's, that's part of it. Um, and and I will say, my wife is a far better board member than I am, which is why she's on a lot more. Uh, but she, she she is she's amazing. Uh, uh, but but um, you know, I think we we have a tilt toward um, some smaller organizations that we think have very big potential. Uh, so you mentioned Creatio at the outset of this organization. It's very small, uh, growing very rapidly. Um, very focused on the way in which beauty is probably the uh, the, the the last of the triad that that um, modern uh, or postmodern souls respond to, right? Truth, beauty, and goodness. You know, uh, I'm not mm-hmm. sure that, that that truth really resonates with with a lot of folks. It does, of course, by definition. But but you know, right. truth, beauty, and goodness. The one I think that is most interesting to the most people is is beauty. And so beauty as a, as a mode of evangelization um, is, is uh, really what they're all about. Small organization, uh, it's an organization where, um, because of that, I think there's a kind of higher sort of marginal value of our, of our time. So that's, that's right. an example. Um, then, then education, you know, my wife serves on uh, the, the board of a, of a college uh, well-known uh, Catholic liberal arts, uh, great books program, uh, and uh, and uh, an institute here in Denver because you know we we think that in the same way that beauty matters, truth matters. But truth to 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 convey it well 
it's very hard in a in a world that is so full of noise, right? And so so picking, right. you know, picking kind of you know a, a place like a Thomas Aquinas College um, is is sort of you know for us at least a, a, a smart move. Um, uh, and and uh, and you know I think I think um, uh, you know some of it is is also just personal relationships. You know, a good friend of mine uh, was asked a long time ago. You know, hey, why uh, wh- why did you decide to to become a Catholic? And he said, because you know somebody asked. And, you know, <laughs> and so so that's part of it too. Just sort of personal relationships. Yeah. You know, you, you right um, right. So. Some of it is that it's just kind of happenstance and relationships. Well, um, I, the, your answer there, especially on education, leads me to our next topic, I think. But I'm going to wait for that until after we come back from a break, talk a little bit of practicalities. Uh, we will, um, therefore, be right back with uh, Tim Reichert. Back in a moment. All right, time for a practicality. Uh, and today, happy to have with us somebody who's not from American Philanthropic, but from a, one of our um, partners uh, in this nonprofit space, a uh, firm called Innovest. And man's name is Rich Todd, the founder, principal, and CEO at Innovest. How are you doing today, Rich? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here. You have a lot of expertise in an area in which uh, we have none, certainly I have none, which is doing investment-related uh, consulting for uh, nonprofit organizations, family offices, even retirement plans, and some families. Um, it's a really interesting topic because uh, if you're a nonprofit leader, uh, whether you're on the foundation side or, or the charity side, you probably have some funds to manage, at least if you've reached a certain size. And um, a lot of questions come with that. How do you do it well um, and, and wisely? So um, maybe we can start with uh, a question that is um, uh, one that you're very interested in, which is the values question. Uh, how how important is it for a, a nonprofit uh, to be investing in a way that uh, aligns with its values? Thanks, Jeremy. I, I think that it is uh, up to that nonprofit on a case by case basis. You know what we find in a lot of cases is advisors come into organizations. And they're really trying to get them to invest in their values. Mm-hmm. And it's really important for the, the nonprofit organization to focus on what they care about. And for some uh, nonprofit organizations, it's about just getting the best returns that they can so that they can, they can give more money away or they can fulfill their mission. And in other cases, uh, especially with religious organizations, they don't want to be investing uh, in uh, securities right. that are contrary to what they believe. Right. And so therefore we believe that we should go through an exercise of determining what that is. And then we can go through a process of, of helping them make sure that their portfolio is in accordance with their values. How hard is it for an organization with that sort of profile, that, that sort of commitments to get their portfolio aligned? Is that a difficult process to go through or, or not so difficult? Uh, it, you know, I, I would say the larger the organization, the easier it is. But the good news for smaller organizations is it is getting easier. And there are many investment products, many investment uh, managers that are able to customize a portfolio that uh, are in accordance with values of, let's say, religious organizations, Christian, Catholic. And so that universe is broadening. How, what percentage, your estimate, I know this is just an out of the blue question, but of, of faith-based organizations like that, what percentage of them that have investment advisors that have a firm like yours helping them, what percentage of them are concerned about this question or actually acting on that concern? Is it a fairly low percentage or is it a fairly high percentage? I would say it's a fairly high percentage, but I think in some cases they believe that they're getting values-based yeah. investing. And in some cases they are investing in uh, securities in companies that are really contrary to what uh, they care about. And yeah. today there's a lot of talk about ESG investing, environmental, social governance. And in yeah. some cases, if you're a religious organization and you're, you, you're concerned about 
let's say pornography or abortion, mm -hmm. you may certainly be investing in some of those uh, companies that are involved or engaged yeah. in that in that area. Uh, that's no, I'm, I'm sure that's the case, and I'm sure that's why it's very important to have an investment advisor that is aligned with you. Um, what about investment committees? Um, that's something you you've mentioned to me before. What is an investment committee? Uh, when, when do you form one if you're a nonprofit, and what does it do? Well, normally uh, we would recommend that when you have assets to invest, that a, uh, a a board or a finance director, a CFO, delegate that responsibility to an investment committee that has some background and expertise in uh, in investing, maybe personal investing or nonprofit investing. I do believe that there is a benefit in having a, a variety of expertise on that investment committee that could include maybe people that are that are their own uh, their own businesses in the let's say wealth management business to CPAs can be very helpful in the way that they think about investing and they think about spending and and development and that can be uh, really important when you're designing your objectives. So we we can help organizations think about how to construct an, an investment committee that is uh, uh, can perform great work for uh, for any organization. What is that relationship? You just mentioned uh, your spending policy, um, your development efforts. How, how do those um, how do those play into these questions about how you should be invested in your in, with your assets? Yeah, that's a good question because when we're hired, often the first question I ask is, "Why is your portfolio designed the way it is?" And it is, uh, you know, often that they they can't tell me the reason. And what we believe generally is that if you are an organization that spends a lot from that portfolio, that is a formula to have conservative objectives. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are uh, adding money to the portfolio. Uh, if your development is really strong, if you've hired American Philanthropic to help Thanks you- Thanks for the ad, Rich. Appreciate that. <laughs> to grow your, your fund, whether it's operating cash or a foundation or endowment, uh, you know, if, you're, if you're successful there, that's a, that is a formula to be more aggressive. And we go through a, a process of quanti quantifying not just what that return objective should be, but also what that downside risk tolerance could be so that if your time frame is short uh, and if your risk tolerance is low, you need to make sure that portfolio is designed to be uh, low risk. How big um, should a nonprofit be? And what's the right metric? Is it uh, assets? Is it annual fundraising before they're engaging an advisor like you guys? Well, uh, often we're we are we're hired to manage an existing portfolio, but we're often hired in the event of, let's say, a major gift campaign or mm. a uh, some sort of capital campaign where they know they're going to have some money to invest. Uh, that's when we're engaged, and you know, donors want to make sure that that the organiza organizations that they support are good stewards, right. and so uh, we're. Uh, Part of what we do is we help, uh, as a co-fiduciary, we help the donor understand that they are a good fiduciary, they are a good steward, and at the same time, they can meet those goals, those investment goals. Makes a ton of sense. Uh, Rich Todd, InnovestInc.com, that's I-N-N-O-V-E-S-T-I-N-C.com. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been great to be with you. All right, we are back with uh, business owner, economist, and U.S. congressional candidate Tim Reichert, uh, and we have been talking a little bit about his philanthropy and his view of charity. I should say charity, not philanthropy. It's a distinction I think Tim probably uh, agrees with me on. You, you've been talking about the distinction between charity and social work. I, I talk about the distinction between charity and philanthropy along yeah. the exact same lines. Yep. Um, but let's shift now towards what we started to touch on at the beginning of this conversation, which is um, economics to the American economy, perhaps we should say, the state of the American middle class. Um, I know you're running for Congress precisely because 
uh, you're concerned about the state of the American middle class, how would you characterize its status now? And what, what data points to you have been really sort of clarifying for showing just what the problems are that the middle class and especially rising uh, young people are facing today? Yeah. So I, I guess the word that I would use is, is beleaguered and, and um, shrinking. <laughs> so that, you know, the, the American middle class, I, I, I talk a lot on the campaign trail about the difference between the 1970s and now, right, in a lot of ways, very similar, right? Inflation, uh, kind of a low or slow growth economy, uh, trouble at the southern border, trouble with Russia, right? So all, all kinds of similarities. But the difference is that in the 70s, we walked into that, uh, that, that, that moment, that time of challenge with a very strong American middle class which, you know, I follow a guy named Ed Wolf. He's an economist who studies something called asset poverty. Um, I think his definition of the middle class is is exactly the right definition of the middle class. It's the middle 60% based upon ownership, the value of what you own. Why? Because that middle class in the 70s, they owned things, right? Homes, businesses, prospering main streets, uh, trucks, tools, land, boats, mm-hmm. whatever, you name it. There, there, it was an ownership society and an owning middle class. And today, you know, we have this extreme uh, asset inequality, this, this uh, concentration of ownership on one side of the spectrum and this non-ownership, this almost serfdom on, on the other. And, you know, the, the sort of the indicia of that, I mean, you could measure it directly as, as Ed Wolf has done. Uh, he's got a great book. Let me just look at my bookshelf here. Sure. A Century of Wealth in America is what it's called. It's a fantastic, thick tome, but it's a really good analysis of where we are um, from the standpoint of ownership in America, ownership of assets. Um, uh, But, you know, we got here for a number of reasons. So, you know, some of those have to do with trade. You know, David O'Tour at MIT has done some amazing work on what he calls the China shock, showing the way in which those, those, those trade models fail and the way in which folks who, who lose those, those high value manufacturing jobs never get back on the economic ladder or have not gotten back yeah. on the economic ladder. Right. Since we began this, this relationship uh, with the Chinese economy, uh, you know, uh, is it uh, Julius, uh, Wilson, no, William Julius Wilson. William Julius uh, Wilson, yeah. Yes, yep. uh, the the great uh, African American sociologist. And, you know his mm-hmm. his his book um, when work disappears, right? So fundamental, right? We, we've so that's that's one that's one sort of key indicator. Technology is another, right? right? So we've had we've moved to a world in which, um, well, let me say from which. Uh, we had capital and labor that uh, complemented one another, and yeah, sure, and you know, kind of struggles between capital and labor all through our history and through the history of capitalism. But, but fundamentally, you know, physical capital is the kind of capital we had, and it made labor more productive, right? So that's why wages rose. Right. Now, uh, a a larger and larger share of the capital <clears throat> that firms use is intangible capital particularly in the form of software and particularly in the form of uh, automation, machine learning, artificial intelligence, which if you think about it, by definition, that does not complement. In fact, it competes with labor. And so it pushes uh, wages down by definition, right? So it's, you know, the, the way, the way that our policymakers often think of that is they're like, Oh, good. It's deflationary. It keeps inflation down. Well, how does it do that? It does it by decreasing wages, right? So, right. so, so, so that, that's a big part of it. Monetary policy is another key sort of indicator yeah. of cause. Right? So we've, we've, we've wound up in a place where, at least until really the last several months, interest rates were at 5,000-year lows. Think about that, 5,000-year lows. And that means that we've destroyed – Yeah, it's incredible. We've destroyed thrift, right? So, so – you can't you can't get the value of compound or the benefit rather of compound interest, which is so. Yeah, you can't powerful. save your way to prosperity in any way. Uh, it's, it's a foreign idea now to people. You yes. have to. Yeah. Thank you. That's that. a 
that's a better way of saying it than I did, right? You can't save your way to prosperity. That's that's an awesome phrase. I'm going to steal that for the campaign trail. Uh, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> Please use it. I mean, it's a truth that I actually have used in my own life as a way of like uh, actually justifying risks, you know? But it is actually those, I think you call out well, rightly that it's socially though, that's really not the situation we want, right? Not it's, at all. It's, you, it's weird. Yeah. Yep. yep. Not at all. And, and, and so much of this stems from kind of a shift in the way we think about economic policy that happened in around the 1940s. Right? So you, World War II hits, mm-hmm. centralized the economy in a way we hadn't before. We begin to build out the administrative state in a very serious way. And, and economic policy shifts from, you know, a, a, a kind of uh, uh, micro, uh, microeconomic uh, focus on building strong households, right? Um, whether it was the six homestead acts that we had as a nation, not one, we had six, mm-hmm. uh, or policies that very geared toward home ownership and creating incentives for home ownership, or creating incentives to build a manufacturing base, you know, we had industrial policy. Right. Uh, we've, we shifted from that to, to really economic policy being focused on uh, almost exclusively on fiscal and monetary policy. So the idea is, you know, the state is responsible just to kind of keep employment levels at a certain, you know, uh, at a certain level. And, and that's a very different conception of people. Uh, it's it's sort of a view that look these are all serfs we just got to keep them employed and um, try to keep prices somewhat stable uh, but it it lacks an idea of what human flourishing really is and what a what a happy prosperous democracy looks like a happy prosperous middle class looks like you um I, I at one point just not just to pause you for a second and this probably goes back a little bit to the technology point uh, not only does I think it's a really important and insightful point, by the way, because people will say, oh, people are always complaining about new technologies and look, we're fine. You know, everybody adapts and we're fine. Uh, no, nothing to worry about here. Self-driving trucks, yada, you know, automated robots, big, big deal. But I think it's a really insightful point. I just want to emphasize that this might be a fundamentally and intrinsically different moment with, with sort of when we're talking about capital being essentially sort of the source of technologies that replace labor rather than um, lead to more capital, which then calls forth the need for more labor and and, and high pr- high price labor at that uh, yeah. across the board. Like this. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 di- right. We've always had something called labor saving innovation. There's always been capital that that to some degree you know uh, saves on labor costs, but for the most part, because that capital was physical on net, it was very much complementary. It made labor more productive raised wages and grew the economy now it competes directly i mean that's what ai does ai is designed to do what you do in one way or or another depending upon the on the problem right right that's that's a that's a whole different ball of wax which we can talk about what to do about that but um, the other thing you you've mentioned about technology uh computers generally they've uh they've rewarded bigness in a way that previous maybe sort of capital innovations haven't so much. And so you, you have a graph you show, I think it's over the last it's some 50 year period, maybe it's 72 to 2012 or something like that. I maybe have it wrong. You can tell me that large firms, 500 employees or more have grown at a much faster rate than, or have a much higher internal rate of return. I don't remember exactly the metric than smaller, small and medium sized firms. And that is because you think of the sort of scaling effects that are made possible by sort of computers, uh, digital technology. Do I have that right? Totally. Yeah. I I remember this to go back to the conversation we had about my days at EY. I remember like that was the time during which, you know, sort of the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, maybe mid to late 90s, when the, the the whole game for these now gigantic multinational corporations was to implement these ERP enterprise resource planning software um, systems mm-hmm. that allowed them to manage a, a, at a global scale in a way that was was hitherto impossible. You, you could never have done it, um, but but you know because of those sorts of systems, which are now far more sophisticated than they were you know twenty five years ago. Um, 
there's there is an ability to manage across geography and across productive domains, meaning different types of products and services that is just completely unheard of uh, 25 years ago. And that has rewarded, that has created economies of scope and scale that we never had before. Uh, could you, I, I stopped you. you, you've mentioned three or so of the variables you think have contributed to this erosion of the American middle class. So uh, technology and, and um, this uncap, uncomplimentary labor, uh, monetary policy you're, you've touched on. What, what else would you say has, because uh, I know it's an overdetermined thing, or at least I imagine that it is. Yeah, it's a good way of saying it. Um, I guess I would add, you know, a couple things. One, I, I talk about complexity as discrimination. Um, you know, uh, the Code of Federal Regulation stands mm-hmm. in 200,000 200, pages, right? Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's – think about how – think about Thomas Aquinas and his definition of law, right? One of the, one of the uh, necessary conditions for law to be law is it must be promulgated. And that just means stated and understood. Right. Well, the Code of Federal Regulations ain't law. Right. I mean, 200,000 pages. It's impossible for any human mind to right. contain or understand uh, the, the CFR. Yeah. It's, just not, it's not possible. And so. So anyway, that, the, why do we have it then? Well, we have it in large part uh, because large corporations have either lobbied for or actually directly written it. Why have they done that? Because yeah. uh, they can buy market share. Right. The, the cost of regulatory compliance is a fixed cost. And so if you're a GE or a Walmart or whatever, you can spread that fixed cost out over hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue. And the little guy who wants to get into those markets can't. It's a barrier to entry. It's called raising your rival's costs, big economics literature on it. And that has you know, closed off a, a key pathway into the middle class, or at least largely closed it off, which is you know, small business. Think about the old sort of, you know, built a business out of my garage, you know, uh, right. Uh, myth, right? Not, not that it was never true. It was, but it's almost a mythology in America. That is to a large extent, no more because of the amount of, of regulate regulatory constraint on the little guy. And that's not because governments just sort of did it. It's because in large part, because large corporations lobbied for these things. Uh, and so, you know, that's a, what does that do? It erodes yeah. the middle class. It erodes the middle class. Yeah. Arms a little guy. Another thing you've talked about that I think is really uh, pertinent today because I hear it a lot and, and I feel for them from my young colleagues um, is housing shortages and how that has driven up home prices. And of course, home ownership was sort of sort of the sine qua non of being a member of the American middle class, at least it used to be. And certainly yes. is by your definition, talking about asset ownership as being sort of the key to being yep. a middle class. Um, how, how big a role has 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 that played? A, a very big role, right now. Now, uh, housing is thought of as an asset class, right? So, so you know, it's easy to pick yeah. on Blackstone, right, because they're giant. Uh, but it, it's it's also, I think, fair to pick on Blackstone, right? They, they are going around buying, uh, you know, massive numbers of single family homes. I have heard, this may or may not be true, but, the, but what I have heard is that, you know, in some cases, entire neighborhoods, right? So what, what are we doing, right? The finance industry is becoming yeah. a perma landlord and it's looking, what, what does that look like? It looks like post-Victorian England, right? Where where you you, you had a, 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 a land-owning class and a bunch of serfs that, that rented from them, Um and so the financialization yeah. of certain things that, that uh, used to be, um, well, as you say, a, a, a crucial pathway into the middle class, uh, I think is a very bad development. And a big part of the reason that happened is, is monetary policy. Mon- mon- monetary policy has made housing not only a very high internal rate of return asset class, um, right. uh, uh, because you can lever it, right? So you can get a very high IRR on your equity outlay, but but it's also um, it, it's also uh, provided an enormous amount of very low cost capital to certain players in the private equity space or the money center banks or what have you. So uh, I think that's a major yeah. problem. Funny how housing is where a lot of this stuff comes together, right? Regu- regulatory regulations limiting the yeah. um, uh, building of new houses, so you sort of the reg- regulatory sort of regime contributes yep. to it. The financialization contributes to it. Trade with China in a weird way contributes to it. I, I certainly I've heard more and more from 
friends living in Texas in particular that um, houses in the neighborhood being bought by uh, uh, China, <laughs> yeah. by representatives essentially of the Chinese oh, yeah, uh, government. Totally. This is a, totally. obviously with American dollars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they've got to, they got to deploy the, the 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 capital, the financial capital that they have because of their trade surpluses, right? Right. Yeah, and so it's a little bit, um, to say the least, worrying for those who care about thriving communities, human flourishing, civil society, to think about a world in which um, you yeah. know a significant percentage of our housing stock is owned by uh, banks in China. I that agree. doesn't seem like a good future. <laughs> but nobody is even talking about that as far as I can tell. I mean, certainly I haven't heard any uh um buddy talking about it. Are there are, I'm talking is, about do you it. know of any I know you are, Tim, and I appreciate it, but do you know of any other legislators or would be legislators who are have sort of brought bills to bear on this sort of question or or um introduced new That's a regulations? Question. That's a good question. I don't. Uh certainly that doesn't mean that there's that, you know there aren't some, uh, but I'm not aware of that. Right. Yeah. The fact that the, we're not aware of them and somebody running for Congress isn't aware of them tells us, I think, all we need to know about the Perhaps. sort of um, <laughs> the lack the lack of alignment between what is really happening in this country and what people are talking about when it comes to, you know, legislation. Yeah. Okay. More things I want to get your opinion on, on this middle class question. I know we're just sort of like parking on this question, but it's so important. Um, just two areas I'll just give, ask you to kind of riff on. Uh, college debt. Uh, and healthcare costs because those are other two things that yeah. you've brought up among other people. Yeah, so as real uh, issues. Yeah, there's this uh, there's this thing called the Peter Thiel graph, right? Peter Thiel was sort of criticized for this this graph that he threw out there, and yeah, I think he, there were some you know people made some had some technical quibbles with it. Um, turns out he was right uh, if you if you take his methodology and extend it in time, and what it shows is that. Um, you know, the price of a college degree, college tuition has increased by around 800% in the last 40 years. And then, you know, the, the way I like to say this on the campaign trail is, meanwhile, headline wages for, you know, those without a college degree have flatlined. And in some cases, in nominal terms, mm-hmm. you don't even have to adjust for inflation. They're still flat. Wow. Like nominal, like headline wow. wages. And so we're buying college degrees at 2022 sticker prices with 1982 wages. And uh, so, so why is that? A very big part of the reason is the increasing array of services that these colleges and universities have baked into the tuition bill, right? They're the gatekeepers or a gatekeeper into the middle class. They know it. And as a result, kind of this bureaucratic impulse to, to build empire kicks in. And they bundle all kinds of things, whether it's giant research departments, uh, whether it's, you know, spas and gyms, whether it's sports programs, uh, you name it. You know, the college experience has become extremely luxurious in some places and extremely expensive across yep. the board. And so, you know, what I say is let's let's apply some antitrust policy here because – uh, you know, we've got mm. we, there is we have this doctrine against uh, tying or bundling in our antitrust laws, uh, which basically mm-hmm. says, look, there are cases where tying is anti-competitive. That's exactly what these colleges and universities are doing. So I, I say we ought to force right. public colleges and universities to separately price the classroom time that you need to get the credential mm-hmm. from the rest of the services. And that would decrease the cost of a college degree by as much as 75% and, and reopen this pathway mm-hmm. to the class uh, for, you know, millions of Americans who simply can't afford it. Now. Um, and so, you know, fine. Yeah. If, if, if you want to, if you want to provide all these other services, you can just don't make, don't force people to buy them in order to get the thing that they need in order to prosper which is the classroom. So that's one. I, um, I wonder. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah go ahead. No, go ahead. no, no. I, well, you know. uh, that's a quick question. A quick question about the college. Cause it, that's the most, that's a very interesting idea. And again, it's another one I have never heard anybody articulate. And I, 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 on that one, I wonder, I think it would, even if you did it, I wonder if, if consumers would continue because essentially what you're buying is a network relationships and not actually the content Especially, I mean, many of these public, as you know, universities, the courses you take are not exactly full of useful content. I think I'm not breaking any news there. Uh, maybe they are in engineering and you know chemistry, but not in 
many, many other areas. Um, I wonder if the value of the network wouldn't still be somewhat sustained and people would still choose the $200,000 price tag for the Some four would. years. Oh, there's, there's no doubt. Some would. But think about all of the folks who can't afford that, right? They right. would they just buy the classroom time. And that's great, right? So let them get the classroom time that they that they, that is required for the credential. But yeah, no, no doubt. That's kind of why I say, you know, let the university separately price these these services because yeah, some people would still demand. We'll find out. The, yeah, the yeah. full college experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So healthcare. I'm sorry, I cut you off. I'd like to hear your thoughts on on healthcare, Tim. Yeah. So I think the key thing with healthcare, uh, and and here too, for whatever reason, there seems to be very little discussion of this. Is that you know uh, there's no price formation, and I know that sounds like you know nerdy economist stuff, but here's what I mean: when you go to go to a hospital and and, and let's say you get an appendectomy, appendix flares up, you get that thing pulled out, um, uh, you, you get a bill, and you know let's say there's a twenty thousand dollar or fifteen thousand dollar price tag on, that's not a price, that's just a number. Um, a price is something that. <laughs> that reflects the underlying value of the resources that were required to produce the thing that you got. And, and so how do we know that that's not a price? Well, now we can test it. So I point to talk about this in my mentioned the Oklahoma surgery center. There's several of these places, but the Oklahoma surgery center is probably most well. So the Oklahoma surgery center is in Oklahoma and, uh, and they, they are a healthcare center. They provide all kinds of, of, um, uh, of services procedures, um, they they take cash only. It's cash on the barrel head, so there's no reimbursement, mm-hmm. nothing, no insurance, cash on the barrel head. And as a result, they have had over the past twenty years, they have had to determine prices. They've had to think about, okay, well, gee, what's the what, what is this what does this machine cost? You know, what are these what are these um, you know disposal the disposables that I need for the surgery? What are those what do those cost me? What about the doctor's time? What about the, the, the room or the lab? What, what is that capital outlay? And so they've formed prices the way that producers actually form prices, which hospitals do not. And so what you right, see right. is that for a very, very broad array of services, I think it's like 600, um, the price that the Oklahoma Surgery Center charges is around 25% of the invoice number. Now, I'm not going to call it a price that you get from a hospital. Yes. And so people come yeah. from all over the world for that reason. And so what I say is, okay, one of the things we ought to do to reform healthcare, everywhere that we can observe a price, we should force hospitals uh, and insurance companies to reimburse at that price. That should be the that should be what shows up on your invoice, because what's showing up on your invoice again is we know, you know, three to four times higher than a true market price for the service. And a true mar- that's the beauty of a true market price. You know that the service will still be supplied at that price. So this wouldn't restrict supply. It would simply, right. it would simply force rationality because that's what prices really do is they, they impose a certain rationality. It would, it, would, it, would, it would force a certain rationality into a system that has gone really kind of haywire. I mean, I've tried to study the healthcare system many times and I can tell you the complexity, you know, I talk about complexity as discrimination in my, in my uh, manuscript, the complexity uh, of our healthcare system is mind boggling. It's mind boggling. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of true market pricing is, is it just injects rationality into that system immediately. Now we don't observe prices. Yeah, go ahead, Jeremy. Sorry. Well, I just say I can hear the hosannas from here. Uh, uh, I mean, because <laughs> it is it is is maddeningly irrational as everybody who's ever had to interface, which is all of yeah. us with the healthcare yeah. system. Yes, yeah, it is. It is indeed. Um, sorry, I cut you off. You want to make one more point? I think. Nah, it um, was it was just an ancillary point. I should uh, let you do some more talk. <laughs> well, I want to. We're getting near our time, so I want to. Let me just take us to. Uh, there's so much more we could talk about. I could talk to you about this stuff all day because you actually have studied it. It's great to have a real economist on who's thoughtfully reflected on these items. Um, Let me just pick out two things from your platform, which I think are interesting and different. I've never seen it uh, on anybody else's platform. Um, 
just to have you talk about and then we'll, we'll close with these. The first is the very first thing on part of your economy platform is personal data ownership. Tim Reichert believes that every man, woman, and child in the United States should own their data. What does that mean and what would it do if that were the case? Okay. So, uh, so you know, data at, at some level is the, is the new oil, right? It's, it's, it, it's either the, the first or second most valuable commodity in the world. And um, people think of it as a privacy issue. I think of it as a property rights issue because you emit it by just walking around. And um, I, I argue that we need a digital Homestead Act. And I mentioned before we started the show that we, we've had six Homestead Acts in this country. Not one, but six, right? Uh, the great historian Paul Johnson says, no government in the history of mankind has done more to, to develop and foster and ennoble its people than the American federal government did through these Homestead Acts. Um, so I, I argue for a digital homestead act whereby you own your data and there are blockchain technologies that, that help uh, facilitate this. So the technology exists mm. to do this, but you would then be able to lease those data if you wanted to, to advertisers, to large corporations. So it would, it would create an income stream and actually a, a fairly sizable one. We did some analysis of this at my firm and we estimated around three to $5,000 mm. per adult. Um, so that's a big deal, right? A kind of, a, a, you know, a, an enormous, uh, a, it, it's a transfer of wealth. Like, let's be honest, it would, it would decrease the value right. of these large technology companies, which is a, in my view, a beneficial outcome. Um, second, it would protect you. So, so, you know, these large technology companies know more about you than you know about you. I guarantee that's true. I mean, millions and millions of data points on every adult in this country. It would also protect you from large government agents. I mean, we're, we're moving toward a state corporate model that is, that is itself moving toward, by state corporate model, I mean, big government and big tech or big, big right. corporation, that is itself moving toward a kind of surveillance uh, state. Um, and I think that's very dangerous. So, 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 yeah, so personal data ownership to me is a really important um, you know, po- policy objective. Yeah, I think that that um, strikes me as incredibly sensible and and, and needed, um, and 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 realistic when you talk about it, which is which is great. I always thought that might be the obstacle. Okay, one more thing. Um, you've mentioned small. We talked about small business before and how sort of um, regulations are essentially um, a way to keep small businesses often from becoming large businesses and competing with yep. large players in the sector. Um, Small businesses are very much part of the fabric of civil society. Uh, there's no, in a way that the large yep. businesses often are not. I think it's fair to say, uh, and certainly a key to kind of wide asset ownership uh, is the widespread distribution of businesses. Um, how yep. could bring up back up fair trade laws, which are sort of like forgotten now? It feels like to me. Well, what? How could fair trade laws sort of be revived in a way that helps small businesses compete against the giants, of Walmart and? Yeah. Okay. So we built the middle class on the back of four industries, retail, construction, manufacturing, and I'm forgetting the other one, but I will remember it. Um, uh, but, but with regard to retail, we've moved into this, this sort of retail giantism. And most people don't realize this, but, but that happened in large part because one company, Walmart, went around and lobbied for the abolition state by state of what were called fair trade laws. So fair trade laws were laws that allowed, they didn't require, but in some, I think in some cases for some states, maybe it was required, but for the most part, they allowed manufacturers to set the price that retailers that sold their products would sell at. So the manufacturer would produce something, you know, a toy. And, mm-hmm. and then tell the retailer, it would sell that product to the retailer, but it would say to the retailer, you're going to sell this for like a dollar. So the manufacturer was setting the retail price. And what that meant is that the retailers all sold at the same price. And the only way they could compete was on the basis of service. And that gave an inherent advantage to the little guy, the small local retailer. And it, and it fostered civil society. It fostered Main Street. I think one of the biggest reasons, really two primary reasons we lost these main streets. Some people point to the interstate uh, highway system. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but the two primary reasons are we lost the fair trade laws and we lost our manufacturing. Laws. 
Um, and so mm. I say, you know, let's bring them back, right? I mean, we've had this this 40-year experiment, 50-year experiment with giantism. Let's let the little guy compete on the basis of service. And yes, would it be slightly less efficient? Maybe. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, economists have studied this not by very much is, is, is the answer. And furthermore, you're also okay. producing civil society. You're producing relationships right. because of that service. That's so important. I mean, that just seems like smart economic policy that, that would promote human flourishing. Amen. Well, we'll leave it at that. I've, I've kept you longer than I promised I would keep you. Uh, I, I appreciate your time. I know you're very busy. You're, you have a whole, not only a company, but a campaign to run. Um, Tim Reichert, thank you for joining us. I really oh, appreciate man. it. Yeah, this was great. I really enjoyed this, Jeremy. Thank you. I did too. Very much so. Could talk to you for much longer. If you want to follow Tim, get involved at all, uh, um, just learn more about him and his campaign, go to ReichertforCongress.com. And uh, again, Tim, thanks so much. Uh, Good luck to you. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate your time.